if people own mortality, we would do better in general. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hi, thanks for tuning in today. Um, it's just me and Grant, no guests, and we are going to talk about something called terror management theory, which is something that I've only recently been learning about. And Grant, I don't know that you would say you're more of an expertise in it. You do seem to have a lot of interest in this and I'm not sure if you feel comfortable talking about how you came across the topic, you know, what you believe it means for today. Sure. Well, terror management theory is based on the work of Ernest Becker, who wrote a very influential book that was published in 1973 called Denial of Death. And his basic premise is that our knowledge of, of mortality, the limited nature of our existences, is a, a key factor in how we live our lives. You know, I don't remember the names of them offhand, actually, but three psychologists were very taken by his work and operationalized it as terror management theory. The idea there is that anxiety about death and particularly how strong the awareness of death is, what they call mortality salience, like how much mortality is on your mind, is a factor which fairly strongly determines people's responses uh, mm -hmm. to various things. So for example, if you increase someone's mortality salience, for example, by having them watch a video about death or read an essay or write about dying, mm -hmm. they're more likely to lean on cultural beliefs about how to make life meaningful or what happens after we die. Mm -hmm. So they're more likely to evoke, you know, if they're religious themes about the afterlife, if they're about leaving a legacy behind, what they're doing to accomplish that. Yeah. And what's sort of the thought about why that might be in the papers that you sent, um, they offered up like a couple different explanations, right? That people want to have a link to the past, you know, or feel grounded, I guess, by, or, or some sort of comfort. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an existential idea that's been like around a long time. I think one of the core ideas is that unlike, as far as we know, other animals, we are aware of our own mortality. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we can be very, very clearly aware of it because we can put it into words, right? And so this is essentially a challenge to uh, something like self-esteem, not being immortal, but having the ability to imagine immortality is like a blow to the ego. Yeah. And I don't know if this is like too tangential, but when I was just learning about this, I thought about what it might mean at different developmental stages. So like, what does it mean for kids around a certain age who get really preoccupied with loss or death? Or, and what does it mean for a teenager who feels kind of like invincible and how our views on our own mortality shift over time? 
Well, how have you seen it come up? Because, you know, younger kids, it's normal for them to realize that death happens. And then how, how do parents right. sort of deal with that? Well, I think that that's the really big challenge is how do we make kids aware that our existence is finite, right? And kids often are curious about death for themselves, but more often, I think, for a parent or a grandparent. And particularly, I mean, I haven't seen any studies with COVID, but I think I would imagine that that's even more heightened right now. With younger kids and society in general, right? There's right. not a day that goes by that you're not reading the news about how many people are dying mm -hmm. or some people are worried about their own well-being or the well-being of family members. For kids, I think it also depends on what happens in their families. So if someone or a pet or some, someone close to them dies, that's very different than sort of if they see it in a TV show. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think how we handle those questions as parents or whatever, a trusted adult in a kid's life can really impact their, their view of it and their level of anxiety around it. What do you think a good way to address questions about mortality are? Mm. Has that come up for you? Yeah, it's come up in a couple of different ways. And I think that the, the challenge is trying to, I guess, explain things in a way that's like developmentally appropriate, not give too much information, not give too little, not say things like, oh, well, it's death is going to sleep and never waking up because um, then kids are scared, even more scared of bedtime. Um, that, can back, that can backfire. That can backfire. But, you know, even stuff, you know, like water safety, where a kid really might not understand the dangers around swimming and why do we have to be really careful and this is a safety issue and what could happen, right? But kids kind of always want to know the details. Well, I think with kids, one of the questions I have is what, what is effective, right? What is mm -hmm. effective for safety given the cognitive development, you know, of that particular kid at their age? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes parents are scared and they use very scary language and maybe that's effective. Like the kid, you know, never goes swimming. It's whatever, whatever parent wants. You know, on the other hand, there's also safety measures, right? Like fences around mm -hmm. pools and making sure things are supervised properly. Um, but I think one of the issues is just that parents don't want to freak their kids out all the time. Right. And especially if a parent has their own issues around death, they may be inclined to handle it inflexibly, like be too scary about it or too grim um, or too sort of shooting from the hip or, you know, being developmentally sort of too advanced, you mm -hmm. know, saying something inappropriate for their child's age or glossing over it and not being sort of clear and honest in a calm and soothing developmentally appropriate way. But our society is just full of death imagery. It's not only full of death, you know, because of COVID or because of wars or fears about terrorism or natural disasters or climate change. The mortality salience is very high right now right. in the world. And yeah. probably the last 20 or 30 years, it was on the lower side. It was probably higher during the Cold War, threat of nuclear war, um, maybe Vietnam era. And then I mm -hmm. think in general, society went through a, a period where mortality salience was kind of lower, but now it's kind of, it's spiking. 
Yeah. And so that causes sort of changes on a cultural level, maybe. Right, for sure. I think there has been a time and maybe we can see like in the 90s and early aughts when, um, <laughs> what? Early what? aughts. Isn't that what you call it? That's what they say, yeah. Yeah. Like 2000, what? 2001, 2002. Right. You know, people were enjoying like a de- definitely a different, it was like, well, I don't know when the Kardashians and people like that came around and maybe social media is also to blame, but it just felt like a very carefree time. A sense of safety. Yeah. And a sense that like we could enjoy like the frivolities of life. Well, they're not contradictory, right? Um, though I, I read sort of an article, I think it was in the B- reported in BBC, that they did a survey of um, younger people, um, early young adults, I think, and I think half of them said they expected there to be some kind of apocalyptic climate event in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the thing is, what, what happens is when people are faced with mortality, when mortality salience is higher, the, the point of terror management theory is that there's a, there's a bunch of different ways of coping with that. Okay. Um, and for, for some people, it's, it's to be much more carefree, mm-hmm. you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. So you want to, if you're pursuing kind of pleasure in life and fulfillment, then you're going to feel like you'd better get on with it, right? If you feel like time mm-hmm. is shorter. Yeah, in in trauma theory, that's called like a foreshortened sense of future. If you mm-hmm. feel like time isn't, you don't have that much time and you want to do something with your time, then, you know, you push harder. Right. But that seems sort of, well, I don't want to say like totally on the opposite side, but that seems like it's a departure from this idea that like we live according to our values or we want to make an impression or leave the world a better place than we found it. Well, I actually think it's consistent with that idea because the person would strive harder to work typically within their values. Now, they might question their values Mm -hmm. and they might decide to try to change their values. But one thing the terror management theory consistently shows is that at least in the near term, when people's mortality salience goes up, they double down on their values. Right. But don't don't you think that there's something different about the pursuit of, you know, like a hedonistic pleasure versus doubling down and... Well, not necessarily, because what you're describing as hedonism, um, I guess you're presuming that there's like, um, that's coming from a sense of meaninglessness, like I'm just going to go for empty pleasure because, you know, things don't matter. Or maybe you're grounding it in something like existential nihilism, like nothing is important. No, more the former. They sound related to me. I'm I'm thinking of something that uh, I think Aristotle called like eudaimonic meaning Mm -hmm. eudaimonia which is like fulfillment and the value of living like a good life which can include pleasurable activities but i think with hedonism there's a i don't know i'm curious how you how you understand it that it's better to burn out than to fade away Mm -hmm. that there's a self-destructive element and that the pursuit of pleasure may also come at the expense of one's health for sure, or one's long-term health. And I think that you see that, you know, in a lot of teenagers where they are not, they do have that foreshortened sense of future and they just want to have a good time. Or they have a sense of immortality. Or a sense it's, of- it's hard for them to imagine that anything bad could really happen to them. Or um, that mistakes that they're making now could, you know, I guess, come back around in five or 10 
years, you know? Well, I think some of that is thought to be related to development, right? right? The adolescent brain tends to be lower on executive function and higher on impulsivity. And some of it may come from evolutionary factors. For example, you know, among what, what is it, men between the ages of 18 and 25 have the highest rate of homicide. And that's also the age range where, where people typically are in the military and are willing mm. to make altruistic sacrifices. And the stereotype is, is that people at that age like think nothing bad can happen to them, that they, they imagine that they are immortal. And mm -hmm. so things like uh, mortality salience, people will stereotypically respond to um, the sense that death is more of an immediate reality by trying to have a sense of immortality. If you're a religious believer, that sense of immortality, they say in terror management theory, may be a literal sense of immortality, like I'm going to go to heaven. And then the justification for values is like, well, I'm going to live according to those values. And so you may double down on your value system in order to secure a place in the afterlife. But the other thing for people who don't believe in a literal afterlife they call symbolic immortality. And that's the idea that you're going to do something again that kind of leaves a lasting, that has some yeah. enduring value for the next generation, et cetera. Even if you know, okay, the sun will go, you know, will turn into a red giant in 5 million years. Or if you're a, physis, a physics buff, you know, someday the universe will reach what they call, what they call heat death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing can live past that horizon anyway. But even the other day, like my one of my kids was saying to me, would you rather live 20 years less or would you rather live forever? And that was supposed to be a very difficult choice. Well, what was, what was it for you? Well, I was just curious, you know, of course, and where the question was coming from. <laughs> but I think the idea of living forever is supposed to sound on the surface appealing. But yeah. in reality, that could be very difficult, right? Everyone you know dies or... Yeah what happens when the universe like, you know, reaches its heat death, you're just floating in the void forever, you know, sounds uh, that, awful. Yeah, that could be terrible. Yeah, I agree. On the other hand, cutting it short, also, I think is not appealing. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's why it's, it's presented as a dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where was that question coming from? Uh, I think it was coming from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, but it's also it's also the zeitgeist, like, you know, we were saying the times that we're in, you you can't turn around as a young person without being confronted with something pretty terrifying. It's, it's sort of, maybe not a bad thing, right? In a certain sense, like Becker's book, Denial of Death. I think his point was that if we're in denial about death, it ends up hurting us. Possibly, but I also think that a lot of people who suffer from you know, intractable anxiety, that death is maybe one of the big parts of that. And I guess the you, fear- you mean, you mean annihilation anxiety yeah. can be part of anxiety. Right. And can sometimes be at the root of, you know, someone's entire anxiety. Right. But what is your recommendation for how to address that type of anxiety? <laughs> well, is it's, it to I, double down on denial or is it mm -hmm. to develop a mindful awareness of death, which is more functional and adaptive? Right. I think ideally you want people to develop some mindfulness around it and, this, you know, some sort of acceptance um, and comfort level and 
to, you know, in the meantime, try to live the best life that they can live uh, to prevent future regrets, um, like the impending loss of loved ones or, you know, even of someone, someone's own health anxiety, I think can really interfere with the ability to live a full, you know, be in a, in a eudaimonic state. I think one of the cases that people make is that in order to be sort of fulfilled and enlightened and, and all that stuff happy, um, you have to come to terms with death in some way. Mm-hmm. And if it's an unresolved issue in the back of your head, or if it's causing panic, you're waking up in the middle of the night thinking about being alone in you know, a faceless universe, you know, the usual stuff. There is something called existential therapy which deals with these big issues, um, very often uh, annihilation anxiety, because it is is the elephant in the room a lot of the times. I'm looking at one of the things we we, uh, reviewed in preparation for today, how Buddhism and Hindu philosophy uh, approach approach Mm -hmm. death. And one of the things that the author talks about is different types of acceptance. So the author talked about three types of acceptance of death or uh, rather references the work of Paul Wong. There are three attitudes of death acceptance, neutral acceptance, approach acceptance, and escape acceptance. Approach acceptance is an attitude that focuses on the afterlife rather than the reality. And escape acceptance is a way of avoiding death in order to escape the painful reality. Neutral acceptance is a neutral acceptance of death as part of life. Neutral acceptance refers to the right attitude toward death, which perceives death as equivalent to birth rather than as a means of avoiding life. And mindfulness can help with neutral acceptance. Mm-hmm. The other two have some sort of defensive qualities, qualities right. like approach and escape. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I can see that, I can imagine that people who are, let's say, super high achieving, running marathons left and right, obsessed with their own health and you know, that that might be like also sort of fall into the category of that escape acceptance, right? Could, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, like trying to um, extend life. Yeah. I don't think we're saying that it, it's, it's a bad idea to be healthful. What you're suggesting is that when people do it to an extreme, it may mm-hmm. represent a defensive avoidance and a, a, a sort of non-acceptance of death. Right. And, and so, sometimes it backfires, right? People exercise so much that they can't be happy later in life. Right. Well, I think, I mean, that is probably pretty rare, but I think that there, I, I guess I'm thinking of like the extreme wellness model where people have unnecessary, you know, tests and that kind of thing. Unnecessary medical tests, or maybe they're taking supplements that aren't based in evidence. Um, or maybe they're exercising so much that it becomes a compulsion that prevents right. them from enjoying other things in life. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe it takes a toll on their bodies and rather mm. than kind of like slow and steady wins the race. Um, I've certainly seen people who are so dependent on exercise to manage how they're feeling, especially when they're working in traumatic environments, that they're brittle, meaning if they're not mm. able to get that particular kind of exercise often something very intense, like running a lot, right. then they don't know what they would do. The, the avoidance, I think, is, is more common and also can be, can be self-destructive. And I mm-hmm. think especially when there's so much anxiety around the idea of death, that it's almost impossible to think about it. 
then then you see the escapism more yeah, sure. and then that's also not great for your health because you, you may not be thinking about the future you who mm-hmm. doesn't want to have you know drank so much alcohol or smoked so much cigarettes like you know later on yeah the the neutral acceptance what do you think of that idea of viewing death as in some ways equivalent to birth sort of just another sort of moment in time mm-hmm. well i think that's obviously ideal is it obviously but, ideal well it seems like it would be very comforting to be able to view it that way in what ways um, do you imagine um i would imagine that it frees people up to make rational decisions about the the life that they want knowing that you know death is an inevitability but not being gripped by fear i don't know like not not there clearly you're not there no well people are afraid of being terrified like a lot of people will say i'm not afraid of death like i'm afraid of dying and i don't want to die in pain i don't want to die in fear well i don't want to die alone i don't want to die alone those are the big ones i think and And, sometimes there's so much uncertainty about it and people generally don't feel like a good sense of control around what kind of death they're going to have because it's unpredictable. That's one of the issues. Yeah. Right. So sort of could happen at any time. Sorry to be the bearer bearer of bad news, but right. But that's so frightening. What if you have things that you wanted to do? And I mean, I think that's like, like not like not die all of a sudden. No, like places that you would have wanted to travel or right. relationships. The fear, or, the fear of missing right. out, like the life not lived. Well, do you have a bucket list? Yeah, but I haven't really checked off that many things from it. Where's that term come from, but, kicking the bucket? Yeah, I think so. I know, but I mean, I wonder what the origin, the etymology of kick the bucket is. I, I'm going to look it up okay. on the internet. Did you have any early experiences that you want to share with death? Do you, do you remember, you know, in the book Siddharth by Herman Hesse, um, which is one of the st- sort of westernized versions of the Buddha, one of the ideas is that in order to be enlightened, the, the main character, you know, Siddharth, uh, was shielded by his family from these four terrible things in life, like poverty, sickness, death, and poor, poor internet access. I forget what the fourth one was. <laughs> Um, And that that allowed him to kind of develop in the absence of knowing about all these the suffering in life so that he could have kind of a core. And then later on, he he experiences like all of the different things, the hedonism, the gluttony, the the asceticism, the self-denial. And then eventually he goes through all of these different challenges to arrive at a place of sort of peace and enlightenment. But my sense is that you had a similar type of upbringing as as the Buddha. I don't know about that, but probably <laughs> maybe more similar uh, than than some other people's for which I'm, I'm really grateful. But I think those types of protections really only last for so long. And some people can, can put them in themselves, right? Some people rely on parents to keep them safe and happy and, you know, carefree so that they can develop I guess that that core sense of self and but once we get out into the world 
I think that's the difference where some people are a little bit more withdrawn and self-protective versus other people are just out there, uh, whatever, whatever it might mean. Some people are just out there. Out there in terms of, you know, what kind of job they do or what kind of media they consume or how much they allow themselves to be influenced, right, by the suffering around them. Well, so much media depicts terrible suffering, death, and so much of the media we look at is about life and death, you know, from the Marvel Avengers, Thanos killing off half the people, or, you know, all these very, very gruesome and gory movies, and even a holiday like Halloween, which is coming up soon, which allows people to process the grotesque and terrifying. What do you make about the role of how much the media more and more deals with graphically terrifying violent situations. Hmm. I think it's meant to evoke fear or rage or bring people in. And what do you mean by bring people in? Oh, you mean sell Uh, like movie tickets? Sell movie tickets or keep someone reading. But how do you think it works psychologically though with this fear of death and, you know, like, on the surface, you might think, oh, no one's ever going to go see like a frightening movie because it'll make them scared of death. Mm-hmm. But you're saying quite the opposite. It's a draw. Right. What's the fascination? Honestly, it's not fascinating to me. I try to avoid that in, in entertainment purposes when I, you know, want to watch something in my off time. I don't want sad or scary stories, but I think for other people, maybe there's some morbid excitement around it or um, curiosity. I'm not sure. I would wonder if it alleviated anxiety, if it alleviated that terror about death, maybe by making it um, in a controlled setting, right? Right. Or something entertaining that you can laugh at. Okay. Um, or, or just get pleasure from. Right. But I wonder if it is a way to manage the, the anxiety around death yeah. Even though it's it's you know it's raising mortality salience presumably though I don't know you know it's something it's something you could think about it would depend on what you watch but things like vampire shows and we our society's fascination with the undead um, mm-hmm. suggests some sort of flirtation with immortality to me For sure. vampires live forever or a way to be invulnerable but then there is just the draw of the thriller right whether it's literary or video well just because it's exciting yeah i thought of michael jackson's video thriller Uh, yeah and i was thinking of trying to do a little bit of thriller but Mm -hmm. i was thinking it wouldn't (laughs) it wouldn't really translate well i kind of want you to go ahead now (laughs) well i mean i don't know if you remember that from the 80s but it was it was a big smash but basically he plays a werewolf Mm mm-hmm you know, but people like to be scared, but you know, you're not really going to get hurt by a scary movie, but there's all this whole new genre, right? Um, you're, you're supposed to supply, you're supposed to supply <laughs> the name of the show, the squid game that, uh, that, is, that everyone is watching. Oh my now. God. Yeah. And it's of this genre of um, st- stereotypically uh, Asian movies that have to do with people being forced to participate in battles or games that result mm-hmm. in gory deaths. And ultimately, yeah. the show is, is about sort of the meaningfulness or lack thereof of life. And mm-hmm. maybe it circulates around some themes about suicide, right? Maybe. Whether life is worth living or not. I don't know. See, I'm, I don't. You're not ready to go there. Yeah, I don't consume stuff like that because it's hard for me to 
I know. Well, I mean, that, that probably is a good thing in a lot of ways. Maybe, maybe other people get a relief, you know, by having it fictionalized or right. narrativized in a containable way. Like you can watch it at home on your TV or your laptop or your phone yeah. and yeah. sort of be thrilled by it. For oh, me, right. I was exposed to death at a very young age, sickness and yeah. death. And I think I had to I had to deal with it, right? I didn't have a choice. You can look up my blog if you want to read about it. And so I didn't have the option of being able to be in denial of death. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's always interested me. And to some extent, I think I've come to terms with it. I'm not sure if I'm quite at the, uh, the mm -hmm. idealized neutral acceptance, but I, I kind of feel like that. Yeah, I think you probably feel like that more than most people, given your early experience, you know, and given, and, given my young age <laughs> and, and, you know, how you process. Well, I think people with that type of early tragedy, they tend to either do quite well or really struggle, you know, often after a period of struggle, sort of figure it out. It, it, I certainly feel more comfortable talking about difficult issues like that. And yeah. maybe to some extent, um, I have a tolerance but a lot of people with early tragedy, early trauma or loss will often feel a sense of time pressure because they're aware of the fragility of life from a young age. Yeah. And then that's something that we have to deal with. Yeah. And other people may not have that experience until they're much older. They may not lose a parent until they're, you know, full grown adults. Yeah. It's never easy, usually never easy. But I think also when you're a full grown adult and you have at least some sort of an understanding that, uh, you know, this is all transient and we have a limited amount of time with the people we love or the people that we have complicated relationships with, it puts us in a position where we're, you know, more able to work it out and get to a place of less conflict or ambivalence, hopefully before we lose that person, right? That comes up in clinical work when adults, patients, you know, have parents who are getting older and yeah. are, are likely to pass away in the relatively near future. And there's an awareness that if you mm -hmm. want to have certain conversations with them, yeah, you better get to it. And what right. will happen if you don't, right? And usually I would explore sort of different possibilities with people. Um, rather than try to pressure people to, you know, make a decision one way or the right. other. Right, right, exactly. But if there's something really at stake and something that can be irrevocably lost, lost, um, I'm likely to be a little more em emphatic to emphasize mm. a bit more why it may be important not to miss the chance. Yeah, and then that is something that I think can make the, you know, bereavement process just a tiny bit easier, right? Because we can tap into what that person would have wanted for us because we, you know, were able to have those adult conversations. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and I would add and say not just the bereavement process, but also the, the personal growth in yeah. the longer term to have, have those experiences that you, you only get one shot at. Mm -hmm. And that it not only can help with bereavement, but also for many, many years afterward, there's a big difference between... Um, having had that conversation and holding that person's memory with you um, and addressing some of those issues, even if sometimes they're difficult, or even if those unresolved issues with a parent, you know, they never get resolved, but at least you got it out in the open. It's very yeah. different 10, 20 years later to have gone through that and to look back and say, gee, I, I wish that I had, 
but I can't yeah. anymore. Right. right. That's a little bit like the, you know, I wish I'd been healthier when I was younger. It's hard to live with those regrets. But I'm really thinking kind of long term, mm -hmm. like who do I want to be as I get older and older so that I have, you know, the the fullest experience. Yeah. Well, you have good mortality uh, salience there. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more to say about this subject. Okay. I would just end up by by saying, I think one of the reasons why I, I was hoping we could talk about it on the podcast is because I think if people own mortality, we would do better in general. Mm -hmm. I think I think if we could do that collectively, yeah. we would we would do better as a species. I think we could tackle uh, problems differently. There probably we'd decide war was not as appealing as humanitarian work. <laughs> And okay. we could redirect a lot of our potential to making things better for people rather than creating more and more threat. And you're doing your part to get the word out. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do think it is something that our species has just been grappling with since mm -hmm. we became sort of self-reflective. And yeah. I don't think our species has any kind of acceptance around death. And I, yeah. I do think it drives a lot of problems. And the research on terror management theory is really compelling. I'd encourage people to to go look it up. Okay. Yeah, it does maybe explain we can a lot of, to some of it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we can link to some of it. Good. How about you? Anything else that you didn't want to say about this subject? <laughs> no, nothing else. Are you feeling sleepy? That now? I wanted to say or not say. I just need a nap. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Feel free to reach out to us. All right. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.